All right. All right. Well, uh, we know that, and you've observed yourself, as I'm tangled in my thing here, (laughs) you've observed yourself that throughout the book of John, we have seen Jesus live in absolute obedience to the Father. And even now, as we open up together John 12, we will continue to see his absolute obedience even in his last week as he prepares to die as the Passover Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So as we begin, I want to encourage you about something. I want to encourage you to leave your Western mindset at the door. Okay, park it over to where the door is and transport yourself back to 8030 where our narrative takes place. I want you to visualize that it's springtime and you and your family are getting ready to leave and make your yearly trip towards Jerusalem, okay, for the purpose of celebrating the Passover, just as the law directed, by the way in keeping with Deuteronomy 16, verse 16. And once you arrive, your family will purchase the sacrifice from one of the city's many baby sheep vendors, and you will wait in the city for Passover, which for everyone is about six days away, right? So during this time, um, Jerusalem was the capital city of the nation. That's why Jewish families traveled up to the country of Jerusalem. And when they arrive, not only do they arrange to buy their annual sacrifice, but they also purify themselves in water um, involving full immersion in what we call a mikvah. Uh, Go to the next slide, Katie. Here's a mikvah. There's an ancient mikvah, just like that one. And if you lived back then, you would have been separate from the men for sure, but you would have had to have um, been fully immersed in one of those. They usually did it under the cover of some sort. Um, But just imagine this scene. Just imagine. Um, There are hundreds upon hundreds, if not thousands, of people in the city um, heading up to Jerusalem for Passover. And many of these pilgrims would have heard, of course, about the raising of Lazarus, or or they were part of the group that had actually witnessed it. And you can just feel the energy in the crowd. You can just sense it. Um, And you can even hear some of the murmuring and the debate go on. Does anybody know where Jesus is? What do you think he will do? You know, things like that. And it's coupled, really, with um, conversations that involve hostility of the chief priests and the Pharisees um, who have given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they were to report it so that he could be seized, right? So that's the backdrop. That was the last sort of few verses of John 11. And that's where we pick up in our narrative today. So if you haven't already, please open up to John chapter 12, and we're going to transport ourselves into our first uh, scene, as you would, and we're going to call it the dinner to honor a king. So our first scene is the dinner to honor a king. And just follow along with me. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, verses, John 12, verses 1 to 6. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard 
and anointed the feet of Jesus, excuse me, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, as he had the money box, and he used to pilfer what he put into it. Okay. Now, imagine. Imagine you were invited to this dinner, okay? As you enter the room, you see Jesus, and you see Lazarus reclined at the table, but that's not the only person that was there. You would also see Simon the leper, um, who was actually hosting this event. And we see that in cross-references like Matthew 26, verses 6 to 13, and Mark 14, verses 3 to 9. They, They strongly point to the fact that this dinner was being hosted at his home. But if Simon was the host, then we can assume he was no longer a leper, right? (laughs) I don't think anybody would have come that close to him. Um, He would have no longer been a leper. And the only way that he could have been healed is if Jesus healed him himself. That's the only way. So that's even interesting to think about. But I just want you to imagine as you sit in this house, and now you're beginning to survey the crowd, because there was one, you begin to uh, notice uh, quite a few heart attitudes on display, okay? Quite a few. For example, we are told that Martha is serving Jesus. Martha is serving Jesus. She is just engaging in the cultural expectation of her day, which was to serve others when there were dinners like these, to serve Jesus and others. But her attitude this evening is so much different than her attitude was a year ago um, that we've often read about in Luke 10, verses 38 to 42. Then she was distracted. She was literally being dragged away from Christ because she was so caught up in her preparations uh, to get this dinner ready, and she was so anxious over the fact that Mary wasn't helping her that it was a problem. It was a problem. But then she learns from Christ himself some very, very valuable lessons like, taking to heart that above all things we do, whether we serve a meal for those we love or anything else, we are to make him our priority in our life. That's something she took to heart. She's modeling that for us uh, through her noble service, which um, she is now engaging in while holding her peace. Meanwhile, In uh, verse 3, we learn that her sister, Mary, is also worshiping Jesus, but through the anointing of his feet with very costly perfume, and she is wiping his feet with her hair. And honestly, that would have been unsettling. It would have been unsettling to the people that were at this dinner because to, in that culture, to expose your hair would have been immodest. They would have taken a vow of modesty back then, and that would have been very immodest. But in addition to even that, she is using very expensive perfume. And this is an oil, you know, that's extracted from um, the root and the spike of an Indian nard plant. I actually bought some when I was studying for this because I wanted to smell it as I was studying. But we find out from the text it's worth 300 uh, denarii. And that's a bit unsettling as well. 
because in that culture, one denarii, just one, was worth a day's wage, okay? So what she is pouring out on Jesus was close to an entire year's wage. It's amazing. And this perfume was poured out, as we are told by Matthew in chapter 26, from a beautiful alabaster jar, very similar to the picture on the slide. See how it resembles somewhat of a translucent um, rock um, or stone, I should say. So it really begs the question, where in the world would Mary have obtained such costly perfume? (laughs) Where would she have gotten this? Well, we at least know that it would have had to have been imported for sure. And it would have had to been imported from a very far away place. Some say that it was probably imported from um, the Himalayas in India, while others say it could have been as far as China or Tibet. But really, the location of where it's from is not really that important in the narrative. Um, The important thing that John is trying to point out is the cost of it. The cost of it and the willingness of Mary to worship Jesus by anointing him with all of it. With all of it. Some other things we can observe from Mary's worship is her humility. She not only anoints his feet with costly perfume, but now we see her wiping his feet with her hair. Again, a little bit unsettling because even touching the feet of someone who is, who, um, even touching the feet of someone was regarded as very degrading. Normally, that would have been reserved for slaves and others to whom little honor was due. And so really, the fact that Mary is willing to engage in this humble act communicates something to us in the text. And what it communicates is she sees herself as lowly, okay, while she views Jesus as exalted, as exalted or elevated. And that quickly gives way to her devotion, meaning that Mary is completely focused on Christ and nothing else or no one else. She is loving and worshiping her Savior in a very sacrificial way. Her unrestrained worship is also a foreshadowing of what was to come. Now, Mary may not have totally understood before the cross that Jesus had to die, but her act of costly, humble devotion seems to signal in the text that she did more than she knew, especially when you consider that this valuable oil was frequently uh, used at funerals, actually. Last week, I mentioned to you that bodies were not embalmed in the Jewish culture, right? So to help with that horrendous smell that would come from a decaying body, it would have been very common to put fragrant oils like this one on a decomposing body. So it is very probable that Mary may have kept this alabaster vial of perfume for her own funeral, for her own funeral. Or maybe it was a dowry that she could use in her family someday. But either way, this anointing of Jesus is just a beautiful picture of of sacrificial love and devotion fit to honor a king, right? Amen? But no sooner do you marvel at what Martha and Mary are doing in their their loving um, act of worship that it is disrupted by another heart attitude that was on display that day. In contrast to Martha and Mary who were committed to Jesus 
Judas Iscariot was not. That's the contrast. According to verse 5, he is complaining about Mary's perfume not being sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. So on the external, perhaps, you know, he's being logical. Perhaps some would even think that was noble. But John is quick to give us insight into Judas's heart motive. He writes in verse 6 that Judas did not care about the poor at all. He only cared about himself, wanting to pilfer any money that he collected to fill his own pocket. And that, ladies, is behavior that flows right out of a heart that is self-centered and ultimately unbelieving, which is shocking, which is shocking because Judas Iscariot was a disciple. He was one of the 12. It's amazing. But by the time Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their gospel before John wrote his, although they do mention his name as well, have you ever noticed it's last on the list? It is last on the list, and he is forever identified by them as the betrayer or traitor of Jesus. Judas really is an example of what Hebrews 12, 15 talks about. He is just a bitter root. He is a bitter root which had sprung up amongst Jesus and the disciples, and he has caused so much trouble. And even today, there's always going to be people like Judas among the body of Christ. On the outside, they talk the talk, and some may even walk the walk. But on the inside, they are bitter, and they are worldly, and they are self-centered. And so Judas' comments in verse 5 was a horrible intrusion in comparison to Martha and Mary's act of worship and love for Jesus. As the women in our narrative are growing more and more to love Jesus, we see Judas growing in hate more and more towards Jesus. Martha and Mary's light is exposing Judas's darkness. Isn't that what happens when we're with unbelievers at times? Now, we have the benefit of the whole counsel of God, and so we can observe a little bit of irony here as well, if you will, that John's giving us. That expensive perfume that Mary used to anoint the feet of Jesus at this dinner was worth three times more than the money that Judas was eventually paid to betray Christ. You see the irony in there? Just amazing. And Jesus, who knows the heart 100% because he's God, defends Mary's actions in verses 7 to 8 when he says to Judas in a very blunt way, let her alone and that she may keep for the day of that, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. Jesus doesn't mean that Mary had not only, that Jesus doesn't mean that Mary had only begun to anoint Jesus with the oil and is planning to keep the rest for herself. Rather, the word John uses for keep means keep in mind. And what is interesting to note here is if Mary had poured out all of her expensive perfume on somebody in her family that had died, she wouldn't have been criticized. This was actually very common in her culture. But in this case, she poured out all of her expensive perfume on Jesus, who was still alive, who was still alive. And so Jesus understood her act to be a foreshadowing of his own death, Um, similar to when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came by night bringing a mixture of of myrrh and aloes, if you recall, and it was about 100 pounds of it to bury him with. Furthermore, 
the poor that Judas was supposedly concerned about would always be there long after Jesus was gone. But they would, but they would not always have him. Um, Jesus said, said this because he knows that his cross and his burial are on the horizon. And so at this dinner, what you're observing here is you're observing a worshiping heart, to be sure. You see an unbelieving heart, to be sure. But we're exposed to another kind of heart at this dinner. And I call it the fickle heart. Okay, the fickle heart. According to verses 9 to 11, when the large crowds um, of Jews heard that Jesus was in town, they actually came to see him at this dinner, and they also wanted to see Lazarus. John is not implying that the crowd were enemies of Jesus, but they certainly were not completely committed to him either, because later, as you progress into the second scene, you're going to find that this large crowd is the one who is part of taking those large branches, right, when he comes into Jerusalem and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But by Friday of the same week, by Friday, the same crowd who was in Pilate's presence when he brought Jesus out after he was arrested, after sitting down on the judgment seat, says, behold, your king. And what do the people say? Away with him, away with him, crucify him. This is only a matter of days, ladies. Fickle heart. What a contrast. What a contrast. What is a fickle heart? A fickle heart is somebody whose loyalty at the end of the day is self. That's a fickle heart. So as we end this section, according to verse 10, we observe also the leaders being a stumbling block to the people. They fall into the same category as Judas. They had unbelieving hearts as they were actively shutting off the kingdom of God or of heaven from the people. These men were godless, and they were actively planning on nailing Jesus to the cross because many of the people were becoming believers of him. And so our dinner to honor a king closes with the devoted worship of Martha and Mary, the selfishness and hatred of Judas, the superficial following of the Jews, and the continued wicked scheming of the false teachers of Israel. The next day, after this very public dinner, because you can imagine when all the people came, (laughs) it must have been very public, John says in verse 12, the large crowds who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took the branches of the palm trees and they went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And that brings us to scene two, the coming of a gentle king. The coming of a gentle king. We refer to this event as Palm Sunday, don't we? Some of us call it the triumphal entry. And it's recorded for us in all four of the Gospels. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they give a little bit more detail about how this cult that Jesus rode into Jerusalem um, came about. A little bit more detail. But But in John's Gospel, he's actually focused more on the groups of people that were in attendance there. There was the large crowd, the disciples, the people who witnessed Lazarus being raised from the dead, the Pharisees, and oh, some Greeks, okay, some Greeks who were also there going up to the feast to worship. 
And since most of us are very familiar with the triumphal entry narrative, and and we even got to enjoy studying that together, didn't we, this week in our lesson, what I thought I would do is I thought I would just um, uh, go ahead and examine this, this section just through the lens of how all of these groups are reacting, how all of them are reacting. And we're going to start with the reaction of the crowd, the reaction of the crowd. Many trusted scholars believe that the anointing of Jesus, of Jesus took place after the Sabbath concluded, placing the triumphal entry presumably on Sunday. Okay, hence Palm Sunday. I say presumably because other trusted scholars like our pastor John and my colleague, Dr. Will Varner, believe it was Monday. But like Dr. Varner said to me the other day when I was double-checking, he says, yes, but Palm Monday doesn't always work with our traditional understanding. Right? Anyway, uh, during this time, be it Sunday or Monday... If you were with your family, you would already be gathering in Jerusalem during this festival week with thousands of others. And so when John says large group, he actually means immense, immense. And when this large crowd heard that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, they went out to him right away as he approached the city. They took some palm branches and they began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in case you're wondering if palm trees grow in Israel, they most certainly do. They most certainly do. Take the one in the the picture. I think it's on your left. Yes, on your left. That palm tree was grown from a 2,000-year-old seed that was discovered at Masada, which is an ancient fortress in Israel above the Dead Sea. So they were, and they continue to be, plentiful. But the waving of palm branches is typically connected with the Feast of Tabernacles um, when the people would rejoice before the Lord in the fall harvest time. But over time, the use of palms became a symbol for Judea during Jesus' time. And, And a lot of times, if you look on Roman coins, you can even see the palm on there as well. And so all that to say this waving of palm branches really was no longer restricted to the Feast of Tabernacles. Rather, it was used for just periods of rejoicing and often welcoming heroes back from battle. Okay, and as I consider just the context of what's going on in this scene, I believe that the people may have had the latter in mind, meaning they were acknowledging Jesus as some kind of conquering hero, Because remember, not too long ago, he raised Lazarus from the dead, did he not? Right? So from the crowd's perspective, only a mighty deliverer could have done that. And so the crowd must have been thinking something like, the Redeemer has arrived. Right? So as the crowd is waving the palm branches with great anticipation, he's entering Jerusalem and they're shouting, Hosanna! And you know what? In the Hebrew, that literally means give salvation now. That's what he's saying. Give salvation now. And that was a blessing. That was a blessing that the crowd was pronouncing upon Jesus from their own prayer book known as the Hallel. You heard of that? There, in the Hallel, what they would do is just recite uh, prayers based on Psalm 113 to 118 during various holidays. But this proclamation um, of the crowd is from Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26, which says, O Lord, 
Do save, we beseech you. Oh, Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now, remember, I said, leave your, mind, your Western mindset at the door, okay? Because verse 26 of Psalm 118, from a Jewish point of view, is meant to be messianic, all right? Meaning that the one who comes in the name of the Lord is Messiah himself, is Messiah himself. And so consequently, the reaction of the crowd in verse 13 is one of pronouncing a blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, whom they believe and even said is king of Israel, king of Israel. Moreover, as we saw in verse 14, when Jesus found that young donkey and he sat on it, And he rode into the city. He was also fulfilling a prophecy, right? In Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And from the reaction of the crowd, it appears that they're more attached to the idea of triumph, as stated in Zechariah. But that is not what Jesus is communicating to them on this day at all. Instead, he enters Jerusalem on a small colt, presenting himself as the prophet said that he would come, a humble or gentle king who comes to bring peace to the nations. But the crowd expected that this king would be, the, would, be, would be there to finally crush their enemy. Who was who? Who was Rome, right? The, the, at that time, they were their oppressor and their occupier. They would have hoped that Jesus would be the one to establish his throne and to finally liberate the people. But instead of attacking Rome... We actually find out in Luke 19, verses 45 to 48, that that Jesus would later attack the Jewish temple. He would attack the Jewish temple. Remember when he drove out the money changers? Remember um, when he did that? Um, And he drove out those who were extorting the people while proclaiming to them, it is written, my house should be the house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. But in this moment, during the triumphal entry, The crowd would never have expected Jesus to do that. That comes later. Instead, as you can see in verse 13, the people are responding with praises. And they're welcoming Jesus, whom they view as a conquering hero, a Messiah, and the king of Israel. But the reaction of the disciples was oh so much different, (laughs) was it not? So what do we see in verse 16? But the disciples did not understand these things but when, uh, at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. This is a bit of a paradox, ladies. <laughs> it's a bit of a paradox. How is it that the crowd can acknowledge Jesus as king of Israel, but his innermost circle, the people whom he lived with life on life, would be so confused? How is it? Well, one way we can understand that is the reaction of the crowd also kind of missed the real point. 
of why Jesus had come into Jerusalem that day. So it shouldn't be too perplexing that the disciples were also confused um, about the significance of what was going on that day. But despite their confusion, the text itself provides us encouragement that when Jesus does resurrect from the dead, um, what he had spoken of about them, uh, what he had spoken of to them about so many things will be made clear. And we saw that when we got to study the book of Acts together, didn't we? Yeah. Um, Right now, what's happening is the disciples and the crowd, they just have a kingdom now kind of view, perspective. That's what's going on. But when Jesus ascends into heaven, it's all going to become clear when the Holy Spirit will come to teach them all um, what Christ had alluded to when he was in his ministry on earth. It'll all become clear. So we observe the reaction of the crowd wanting a warrior king. We, we see the reaction of very confused disciples. And now in verse 19, we see the reaction of the Pharisees, which just actually looks like um, complete frustration, complete frustration. No news here, no news here. Because verse 19 indicates that the Pharisees are just exasperated um, because from their perspective, a type of revival was going on, right? It was kind of happening as the crowd was singing um, the praises of, of Jesus and those who also were witnessing, actually those who witnessed Lazarus being raised from the dead, they were also continuing to testify about him. It must have been quite a sight. And as a result, um, because all of that was going on, verse 11 told us that lots and lots were believing in him. And so these, these religious leaders, they felt threatened. They felt threatened. And so in desperation, you see this exaggerated speech. And they say, look, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world. And there's a little bit of irony there as well. A little bit of irony. By world, the Pharisees mean in the Jerusalem area. You know, that's their sphere of influence. But Jesus hadn't come to be a political um, leader in the way they were thinking. However, his entrance into Jerusalem does mark a very strategic step in becoming the savior of the world, right? And nothing confirms that truth more than reading in verse 20 that some Greeks were also seeking him out, you know? So they too we learn in verse 20, had come up to Jerusalem to worship at the Passover feast. And more than likely, these Greeks considered themselves to be God-fearers, meaning they had not committed themselves fully to Judaism through circumcision or other Jewish rites. But they did fear God and were even permitted to worship in the court of the Gentiles, which is the outer part of the temple. And so these Greeks were reacting by wanting to seek Jesus out. And so they came to one of the disciples. We know that they came to Philip first, and then Philip goes to Andrew, and then together they go to Jesus, right, and to talk to him about this matter. And Jesus responds to them in verses 23 to 26 by saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say, Unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's kind of unclear whether Jesus is just speaking with Philip or Andrew or the Greeks or both, but what is clear 
is this is the turning point in the gospel for Jesus. Because you'll recall that before he, he kept saying that his hour had not yet come. But now we see in verse 23 that it has. And then he uses an illustration to describe his death. Um, he talks about a grain of wheat. And those listening to Jesus back then would have been familiar with it. It was an important crop, right, in those regions because it could be easily cultivated and it typically yielded a huge harvest. It's a very tough, resilient seed. Um, It has the kind of coat that repels dust and scuffing and moisture. And because of that, in order for that little wheat grain to reproduce into a mature plant, it has to go down very deep into the soil, into the darkness of the soil, um, be saturated with water until the seed coat bursts. And the fascinating thing about that process is if you pull it out of the ground in that state, it would look rotten, okay? But that rotten death-like state is the requirement for germination. Eventually, the wheat kernel will swell and it will begin to, and it will begin to swell and the leaves will, you know, sprout up and want to make its way up to the sun. The implication, as far as Jesus is concerned, is obvious, He has no choice but to accept his coming death, even though it's going to be extremely devastating and traumatic. But Jesus' teaching here is not just restricted to himself, okay? It's also meant to be a picture of a person who wishes to follow Christ, like the wheat kernel that is planted in the dark soil for the purpose of seed germination, so is a person who follows Christ. You have to die to self in order to bear much fruit. In other words, being a disciple of Christ is not about adding Christ to your life. It's not, it's not, he is not a a new hobby or a new diet. He is not your best life now, right? To follow Christ means to make him your first priority, your first love, and your life. This is not about nominal devotion by any stretch while indulging in worldly pursuits. This is about taking Jesus at his word and sacrificing everything to declare Jesus to the world, no matter what it costs. And he talks about this um, in Luke 14, verse 26, when he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. So to be a disciple of Christ means to have supreme love for him, even above earthly, familial relationships. So as we close this scene, we have the reaction of the crowd wanting a warrior king, the reaction of Christ coming as a gentle king, the reaction of confusion from the disciples, the reaction of the leaders wanting vengeance to kill him, and the reaction of the Greeks wanting to follow him only to learn that it will come at great cost. But before Jesus' disciples will follow him in the way he just described, Jesus himself must die and be glorified. And that brings us to our last point, which is the coming death foretold by the king. And I'm going to very quickly read 27 to 34 to kind of help finish this up. But it says, Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And so the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken to them. 
Jesus answered and said, the voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. Now judgment is coming upon the world. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is the son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Now, according to Pastor John, we don't know exactly the day that that, uh, Jesus spoke these words. He thinks maybe it was um, Wednesday of, of the Passion Week, perhaps Thursday. But what we do understand here is that Jesus's hour has come. That's important. And the contemplation of that terrible ordeal that Jesus is about to face is filling his soul with trouble. The, in the Greek, the word for trouble literally means to shake or to stir up. But in a figurative sense, it means Jesus was in great anguish or was unsettled within himself. Once again, Jesus, uh, John is exposing the reader to the humanity of Christ. Not only is he the powerful son of God, but he is also truly human, right? So deeply troubled, Jesus asks himself, what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? And I wondered if you recognized that. Did it remind you of the prayer that he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? It did me. When he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not I will, but what you will. So in, it's, it's not so much that Jesus is in anguish over his anticipated physical suffering. We know that's going to be horrendous. We know that's going to be excruciating. But according to Pastor John and some other scholars I read, what really is causing him so much turmoil was the fact that he would be judged by the wrath of God by the wrath of God, and he would be condemned for the sins of those who would believe, past, present, and future. That's what caused him so much trouble in his soul. But because he understands the mission, he answers his own question firmly, doesn't he? In verse 27, with that conjunction, but. And then he adds a reaffirmation of that purpose. It's it's almost as if he's saying he came to die so that those who might believe would, would, might live. He came to die so that those who believe might live. And he then prays for the Father to glorify his name, and heaven answers his petition with an audible voice. Um, this is one of three instances where we see this. The other two are at his baptism and transfiguration. But, in, but the voice here in verse 28 says, I have glorified it, meaning Jesus' earthly ministry, and I will glorify it again. Meaning, um, the, meaning the death and exaltation of Christ. Interestingly, the crowds who were there, they didn't understand the heavenly voice at all. They thought it was thunder, or they thought an angel had spoken to them, but Jesus could hear the voice very distinctly. Um, and, it said this, and, and he says in verse 30, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. And then he impacts the implications of what uh, that voice said about his death and glorification In verse 31, he says it's time for the the judgment of the world. It's time for the judgment of the world. Now, from our understanding, from our own eschatology or end times, 
we would understand that in one sense, judgment is reserved for the end of the age when there's a last judgment. We understand that. But here John is actually pointing out the judgment that begins with the first coming of Christ, right? The rulers thought that by putting Jesus on the cross to death during his first coming was passing judgment on him. But in actuality, Jesus is passing judgment on them. Do you see that? But not only to those who refuse to believe him then, but also the whole world who are in rebellion against the Lord. In his death, the world is judged, but also in his death, God gives his one and only beloved son to die as a sacrificial lamb for those who would believe. The second implication of the death and glorification of the son is the ruler of this world will be cast out, meaning the cross is Satan's defeat, not his triumph. When Jesus was crucified, or excuse me, yeah, when Jesus was crucified on the cross, Satan was dethroned. His reign ended. He is to be considered a defeated foe. And then the third implication of the death and glorification of the Son is when he is lifted up or when he is crucified and glorified, then he will draw people to himself. What he's saying there is really exciting because the focus is on the individuals who have been chosen by God and are given to the Son, you know, when he laid his life down for them, whom no one can take away, can snatch from his hand, whom he will preserve and raise up on the last day. And when Jesus says all men, he means all people without distinction or Jew and Gentile alike. He means those who deny self, pick up their cross and follow him. This points the reader back to the Greeks in verse 20. Um, Jesus is not just drawing Jews to himself, in other words, but all people now, without ethnic distinction, who would believe. Isn't that exciting? With that being said, the crowd is confused. They still had this sort of triumphant Messiah and King of Israel in their mind. They did not even understand what he was talking about. What do you mean the Son of Man will be lifted up? In their mind, that would have meant crucifixion. What are they talking about? We understand the law differently. It says that the Christ would remain forever. What do you mean? We don't really even know what passage uh, those people would have had in mind, but a lot of scholars think they're talking about, um, they may have been referring back to Psalm 72, verse 17, where the name of the king, the royal son, the Messiah, will endure forever. So in any event, they expected this Messiah, king of Israel, to be eternal. And so they demand to know, who is this son of man? But Jesus doesn't answer them. Did you notice that? He didn't answer their question. Instead, he continues to point towards his impending death. And in so doing, he reminds them that the light, which is himself, is only with them for a little while longer, so they need to walk in the light. In other words, he strongly encourages the crowd to trust and believe in him who is the light of the world. And when they believe in the light, they will become sons of light, meaning a disciple of the light. And would you agree that call is no different today? Would you agree? Darkness in this world, ladies, is so prevalent. It's so in your face. Just two weeks ago on Sunday... Um, on a Sunday, a very famous singer got up on stage at the Grammys and sang a song, first of all, entitled Unholy. He was dressed as Satan, and many who watched in disgust, I might add, saw a full-on worship 
of Satan. It was disgusting. It was wicked. It was evil. But why would we be so surprised? Because we live in darkness, this side of heaven. And the man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. And so the call today is believe in the light. Receive Christ as your Lord and King. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or on heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Well, after Jesus spoke amongst the crowd, we learned that he hid himself. And sadly, we were told in verse 37 that though he had done so many signs before the people, they didn't believe in him at all, which was predicted in Isaiah 6 and 53. And so now as we kind of look very briefly at what he says um, as far as the unbelief of the people, we kind of get a little bit of a look at it. For example, verse 42 says that even some of the rulers believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. They were fearful of being put out of the synagogue. They loved the approval of man more than the approval of God. Their sin of unbelief really isn't wrapped up in the fact that they wanted recognition for themselves. Rather, their sin was them loving man's approval more than God's approval. And that people-pleasing heart draws criticism from John. In other words, their fear so blinded them that neither the wisdom or excellence of Jesus nor the miracles that they had witnessed with their own eyes or heard about in their time motivated them enough to follow him. They loved at the heart level man's approval or the glory that comes from man's approval, while at the same time they feared man's disapproval, at the end of the day, that is just sin of unbelief. How sad. How sad. Well, as we uh, come to a close and we kind of wrap up John 12, in verses 44 to 50, Jesus gives the public a final challenge. And that's what I want to leave with you today, this morning. According to verse... 46, Jesus cries out, he shouts that he came into the world as light. So whoever believes in him may not remain in darkness. So what about you? What about you? Are you still in darkness? Are you following the course of this world? Are you living in the passions of your flesh? If so, I have a message of hope for you, which begins with, but God. But God, who being rich in mercy while you are an enemy of God, can be reconciled to God through the death and glorification of Christ. For if you confess that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved and will be with Jesus eternally forever. Forever. There's hope there. But to the one who rejects Christ, I also have a message of warning. Jesus did come into the world to save the lost, but his words of repentance and faith in which he has already spoken of in his word will also be your judge on the last day when Jesus comes back as judge in his second coming. Do not be deceived into believing that if your life is characterized by disobeying God consistently as a pattern of life with no love for him or others that you are a believer, God is clear in his word when when he says that if you say you have fellowship with 
him while you still live in darkness, you lie and you do not practice the truth. And the wrath of God sadly still remains on you. Understand this message that Jesus brings is one of life and uh, forgiveness. Praise the Lord. But it's also one of condemnation and wrath. It's twofold for those who will not believe. And these words that he speaks are final because they are the words of the Father, so they come with authority. And for those who proclaim Christ as their Savior and their Lord, how might you live in light of what we just read? How might you live in the light? Are you walking in the light actively? Are you spending time communing with your Savior in his word and in prayer? Um, Just, you know, We know from Matthew 4, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's how you walk in the light, ladies. That's how you guard your heart against the darkness that is so prevalent in our society. And furthermore, you walk in the light by continuing to trust him, even when it's hard, even when you're being persecuted for your faith. You continue to trust the light and believe in him. So in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among his people. And they saw his glory through many miracles, including the raising of Lazarus um, after being dead in the tomb for four days. But his own did not receive him. They did not. Thus, in the remaining chapters of John, you will see a transition in Jesus' ministry. Um, now he's going to begin to devote himself to his, his own disciples. That's the transition. And sadly, the great majority of Jews are now shut out because of their unbelief. And so, of course, my prayer and my hope is that that does not describe any of you. Jesus lived in absolute obedience in life and death, for he who is the word made flesh is also this Passover lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All right, let me pray for you. Father, we are so thankful that while we were yet enemies, you and your love and kindness sent your son to die on the cross for those who would believe. And I pray that in your kindness, you would also see fit to save those who are here, who hears this message and desires to follow hard after you. And for those of us who are believers, Lord God, I just pray that you would help us to continue to walk in the light. We love you, Lord, and we pray that you were glorified this morning in the message and now um, as we head to our groups. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.